Greetings. You're listening to the Joy of Preparedness podcast from June 7th. Richard Ruge and Skip Geralds are chatting with Bob Hamilton, who's recently moved to Sebastopol, and he's a seismologist with global experience in working with and reporting on this shifting planet of ours. I'm sure you're going to find his information and his personality really well worth listening to. Hello there. It's Joy of Preparedness Radio. This is Richard Ruge. And, oh, and Skip Geralds. And Bob Hamilton with us today, and he's a seismologist. And we're going to just start, I think. So, Bob, what exactly does a seismologist do during the day? I'm retired, so I mainly work in the garden and uh, build fences and yeah. things like that. Yeah. What, what did you do when you were a full-fledged seismologist? I worked for the uh, United States Geological Survey for 30 years, about half my time in management and half in research on earthquakes. And I uh, studied earthquakes that were uh, associated with uh, man-made events like nuclear explosions at the Nevada test site and uh, Hmm. geothermal energy extraction at the geysers. We deployed uh, seismic networks and monitored the earthquake activity, which was always small and not very dangerous. And I studied the um, earthquakes in the central U.S. in the so-called New Madrid seismic zone, which is uh, in the area south of St. Louis, Missouri. And in management, I in the 1970s, I managed the USGS earthquake research program. And in the 80s, I was uh, served as chief geologist for the uh, USGS, so I managed one of the three divisions. Did you work... Uh, near the geysers up in yes, we, California? Yes, we deployed a, uh, a network of about 16 seismograph stations around the geysers so we could monitor the small earthquakes that were occurring there. It, just exactly, it must be obvious, but what, why do you do that? Well, <clears throat> people are worried that uh, man-made activities might trigger a damaging earthquake, so they want to know to what extent is the uh, activity causing earthquakes and how big can they be and how far away can they occur. At the Nevada test site, there was a lot of concern because they were setting off uh, megaton explosion, million-ton high-explosive bombs down there in an area called Paiute Mesa. And some people were saying, hey, you might trigger an earthquake on the San Andreas Fault, which was... uh, over 100 miles away, but nevertheless, there was concern. So the USGS uh, deployed uh, a network of stations there to see how extensive the activity was and how big it was. It turned out that the activity triggered by the bombs was uh, close in, only uh, 10 or 20 miles away, and was generally pretty small compared with the explosion itself. So we concluded that it was pretty unlikely that an earthquake would be triggered on the San Andreas Fault. Mm. And so you, you could differentiate between the, the bomb explosion as compared to what it was doing to the surface? Well, the, 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 these uh, bomb explosions were buried. They were, um, the big ones were like a mile deep. And, mm. of course, we knew when and where it was going to be. The, uh, and, and when a bomb goes off, the, um, the waves 
uh, press the, the ground away from the explosion. It's it's like a like a, a, a sound wave that goes out. Mm-hmm. Whereas the earthquakes that are triggered uh, are more traditional, where there is uh, um, shear motion involved, and and so you can distinguish just by looking at the seismograph, mm-hmm. the seismogram from the event, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was a bomb or not. Mm-hmm. And these earthquakes that were triggered were natural earthquakes that natural in the sense that they were caused by release of stress in the crust of the earth, mm-hmm. whereas the bomb was uh, quite different. But uh, So the bomb itself, though, had created that, the change in the stress? Yes, the bomb had stimulated the release of stress that was naturally occurring in, in the uh, earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Are you having a problem? Yeah, I'm wondering if my these things are working. I don't they know. should be. The listener doesn't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this brings up, I, I, we didn't talk about this before, uh, but do you talk about fracking? Mm-hmm. What, what's the danger there, or is there a danger? Well, there, there have been um, quite a few reports about uh, earthquakes caused by um, hydrofracking. And uh, EPA just recently released a report addressing that question, and there have been some other reports. The USGS issued one together with the Oklahoma Geological Survey. I think in the end, the um, conclusion is that the fracking itself is not causing the earthquakes. A lot of the earthquakes that have been thought to be associated with fracking were really earthquakes caused by by deep well injection of waste water, waste Mm. fluids. Mm -hmm. Now, in some areas, a lot of that waste fluid is a byproduct of the fracking process, but the fracking itself was not triggering the earthquakes. It was the deep well injection. All over this country, there are deep wells where fluids are pumped into the ground that are a byproduct of of, uh, industrial processes or um, other activities that generate water and so they have to get rid of that water and and this country has permitted them to deep to inject this water deep into the ground hopefully into permeable uh, beds that don't uh, link up with aquifers Hmm. hopefully yeah hopefully (laughs) hopefully so literally they just dig a well and pump water down into it yeah it's been going on for for a long time um i joined the usgs in 1968 but um a few years before that i think it was about 1965 there had been a destructive earthquake in the northern suburbs of denver colorado and uh the USGS studied it together with Colorado School of Mines and some other organizations and concluded that the earthquake was triggered by a deep well on the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, which is in the northern northern suburbs of Denver, where nerve gas was produced. Uh, and they had uh, bad water they wanted to get rid of, so they drilled a well deep into Precambrian rock and started pumping the water in, and th- th- that apparently is what caused the earthquake and it was a magnitude five plus earthquake so it did some significant damage but um this kind of thing goes on all over the country Uh, i used to live near pittsburgh pennsylvania and there were earthquakes up near youngstown ohio which is not too far from pittsburgh and uh, initially the suspicion was that it was fracking but uh, it turns out it was associated with deep well injection of wastewater Hmm. And I'm assuming we're not the only uh, nation that does this. 
Well, I can imagine what goes on in many parts of the world. Uh, I mean, can you imagine what would happen in some of the uh, in China or Russia where uh, environmental concerns are not of the same priority? Right. 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 Frankly, I wasn't even aware that when I've heard about the deep well, I really thought that it was directly associated to what was happening with the fracking. And it is, but it's like an ancillary part of it. It's ancillary because the uh, water is just left over uh, from the fracking process. When they do the fracking, they... Uh, in the area of Pennsylvania where I live, they, they, they go down vertically about 5,000 feet to a bed called the Marcellus Shale. And then they turn laterally and go about 3,000 feet. They're required to set triple wall casing all the way down to the Marcellus Shale. So that from the surface down to about 5,000 feet deep, they set this triple wall casing and they're required to cement it so that uh, hopefully this works to protect the, the fluids in the well from the aquifers. Uh, but And then after they drill that well and they go down and, and then laterally, they pump in a mixture of sand and water and sometimes oil and then this exotic blend of chemicals that they have kept secret, the so-called Dick Cheney brew, which includes all kinds of organic compounds like uh, benzene and other things. Then when they release, so they pump that in at high pressure, and then when they have fractured the rock, they release the pressure, and a good portion of the water comes back out of the well. I've read over 90% sometimes. Hmm. So then they have to deal with that that comes out. Now, many of the companies uh, recycle the water and reuse it. Others just get rid of it. They... um, they probably would like to dump it in, in the nearest creek or river, but they're mm-hmm. not allowed to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So they, um, to the extent they can't get rid of it, then they take it to these uh, deep well injection sites and pump it deep in the ground under high pressure. And the high pressure is the problematic part because that is what would cause the earthquakes. What kind of high pressure would that I, I really don't know what the pressures are. But, but a lot. But I bet it's very high pressure. And do you know anything about how deep or how, what, what, how they're done as far as, like, the casings and things like that for I, those wells? I, I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. The um, It would depend on how deep they would have to go to get below uh, sedimentary rocks. They, they would ideally like to get down to permeable Precambrian rocks, crystalline rocks. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they would drill as deep as they needed to to get down to that. And I think that would be variable over the country. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, my, my concept of pumps and putting things under pressure doesn't really include causing earthquakes. <laughs> I, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, I can't quite go there. <laughs> right. Yeah, but if it's happening all over the, the country, and that's something that I need to pay more attention to. I think that's yeah, very yeah. interesting. Well, recently there have been a whole flurry of earthquakes in Oklahoma. And... Um, there's a lot of concern there because uh, they've, they've had uh, a lot of um, fracking and a lot of uh, pumping of fluids into the ground and out of the ground. And so uh, they're not used to having all these earthquakes mixed in with it. And mm. I think a lot of it is uh, associated with deep well injection right. of fluids. Yeah, so somewhat eye-opening, I would assume. Yeah. So if you just landed on Earth and you heard the <laughs> the, the, the word fracking... Mm-hmm and didn't know what it was, how would you describe what fracking is? Well, fracking is short for hydraulic fracturing. Okay. And uh, that means that you're uh, pumping fluids into the ground, uh, into uh, most recently a shale layer. So just what you described? 
yeah. Yeah. So, so you're trying to uh, fracture the rock to increase the permeability of the rock. That is the ability of fluids to flow out of it. Okay. Because these shale layers are um, sort of impermeable. Fluids don't flow very well out of it. That's why these uh, the gas hasn't been produced before. But by by fracturing the rock further, you open more pathways for the gas or the oil to flow out of the rock. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a process of of um, causing fractures in the rock, presumably in the shale layer that you're trying to get the gas out of. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's to extract. It's to ex- fuel. it's to enhance the extraction of gas or oil. Okay. So there, my imagining of that is there's some sort of a layer that is is isn't permeable. You're trying to crack that so that then whatever is below it, whatever liquid or gas is below it, can then come up. Or in it, or in the layer. Uh, in the layer itself. Yeah. Ah. Oh, in the yeah. layer itself. Ah. Okay. Well, I wasn't anticipating we were going to talk about this, but this yeah. is really informative. Bob. Yeah. my gosh. What, do you have anything else you want to say about fracking? Should we continue? Well, it. Fracking, we mean. Of, yeah. <laughs> of course, um, this gets into all kind of political questions. Right. Um, like, uh, do, do we want to fight more wars in the Middle East in order to protect our oil supply, or would we rather put up with a little bit of environmental pollution in order to produce the gas domestically? That's a political judgment. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. the, the fact is that there are environmental problems associated with the production of gas by fracking. However, it has increased the domestic supply of oil and gas to the point where it has weakened the power of the OPEC cart- cartel. Lord uh, I think a lot of people would think that's that's good. They would probably pay a little bit of an environmental price in order not to have to fight wars in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. other people would see it other ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it. It's, it is having an effect, right? I mean, it's well, it has driven the price of um, oil down. From, I mean, it was up around one hundred and forty dollars a barrel. Now it's down around sixty, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it has weakened the power of countries like uh, Russia or mm-hmm. Iran Sorry, or uh, mm-hmm. other uh, of the major producers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it has made energy independence within sight for the United States mm-hmm. at at a, an environmental at a price. price. At a price, right, right, right. So we have to have our eyes wide open to that. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the offshore drilling as compared to the fracking in your mind, are they somewhat similar in the potentials for environmental problems for us, or are they... Well, we've no. certainly seen uh, environmental problems with offshore drilling. Um, I joined the USGS in 1968, and in 1969 was when the Santa Barbara oil spill mm-hmm. occurred. And I, along with three other scientists, were sent back to Washington to write a professional paper about what caused the the uh, mm-hmm. oil spill. I, I had to write a chapter on the seismicity of the Santa Barbara region because I was not really a petroleum engineer or anything like that. But I got a full exposure to the uh, situation uh, caused by the Santa Barbara oil spill. The director of the survey at that time was Bill Pecora, and in his office he had some uh, sweat socks with globs of oil tar on them that uh, enraged citizens of the Santa Barbara area had sent to him. And he kept those in his office and, and tennis shoes that had oil stains all over it. 
then more recently the uh, BP spill in in the Gulf, and now we've got another one in the Santa Barbara Channel yes, area going on. So, mm-hmm. so offshore drilling yields a lot of oil, but it comes along with environmental problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been down in in the area along the Gulf, uh, like uh, uh, in, in where the Mississippi River runs out out in the Delta region and and around Houston, and you see all the refineries and all the all the uh, processing equipment, I mean, to most people it just looks like an environmental disaster. But um, it's it's what fuels our country. So right. once again, there's a trade-off. Yeah, I mean, I have spent a little bit of time in Houston and, San, and Santa Barbara, and um, um, just walking on the beaches in, in either place, you can you, you get these things on your feet, you yeah. know, these little globs of things, and you can see it in the water sometimes. Well, some of that is uh, from natural oil seeps mm-hmm. uh, in the Santa Barbara area. Uh, I'm not too familiar with that area, but uh, is there a town called Gaviota? Gaviota. Galita. Yeah. I, I think that's the area where there there are natural oil seeps mm-hmm. that come right out of the uh, the, mm-hmm. the cliffs and mm-hmm. seep into the ocean. Mm-hmm. That that area has always had uh, oil in the sand on the beach. Right. Uh, right. Most of it just from natural leakage out of the beds that mm-hmm. come there. But mm-hmm. but the some more severe uh, damage was from the uh, oil spill. Right. So I guess that you know. I mean, it, there's a potential cost associated to either of those, the offshore or the fracking, and we as people on the planet just have to look at that. I mean, we could always not need that resource <laughs> if we could find some other ways to be able to deal with our lives. That's right. That's right. We've made a choice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot, as, as in the case with a lot of industrialization, uh, there, is, there are trade-offs. Right, right. And to, to a degree, it seems for me that the choice to to use oil in the way that we have was made a long time ago, and we're all sort of subject to it. And now I look at having a daughter. I mean, I look at the fact that, okay, she's really still having to deal with the decisions that we're still making to live with this that, as, a, right. as a power source. That's right. Well, to my mind, the, the first step should be conservation. We should try to conserve conserve our natural resources as best we can. Mm-hmm. And um, I and a lot of my friends have not felt that there's been enough attention given to conservation. Mm-hmm. More and more there is, but still it's a long way to go. And the steps that were taken to increase uh, mileage with automobiles, to, our, to my mind, should have been started a long time ago. Right, right. I mean, we saw for decades that auto executives said we can't really in- increase the mileage just just like the big tobacco people were right. saying uh, we, it's, it's not causing cancer you know right but now we have cars that go 50 miles per gallon and yes. uh, so we should just move more and more in that direction right. also seeing how uh, solar power and wind power and other alternate energy sources are coming on mm-hmm. kind of puts a lie to the fact that we couldn't have been more efficient for the back so but at the same time, we have to recognize that the um, economy that we have created here really depends primarily on fossil fuels yes. still. Yes. Yeah. still. And um, so it's, it's a complicated issue. It is. It is. Yeah. So what work did you do when you were working uh, to, to uh, conserve the, the conservation issue? 
How were you involved in that, or were you? Well, I, I was really a bystander. I mean, I was a seismologist, uh, either doing research about earthquakes or helping to manage the efforts, and uh, I was not really involved in, in conservation other than as just a private, a citizen. private citizen. And yeah. I, I did what a lot of my friends did. You know, I jo- joined organizations and contributed money here and there and went to meetings, but very much as a um, as a private citizen rather than as a professional seismologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that all of us could do that? Well, I hope everyone feels that way. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we should. I think people might feel that way. And yeah. then the question is to actualize that. I mean, there's, a, there's the question a lot of times for almost anything, like even conservation, is just knowing the little things that you can do to right. conserve. We talked about it last time about like water, what we're trying to do for water and how to conserve water mm-hmm. today as compared to just our patterns. It's a yeah. change in a pattern. Of course, what we say and what we do are often two different things. We have my wife and I have a lot of conversations with our kids and our grandkids about these issues. And uh, we all talk a good game, and we're all for conservation. We're all for the environment. Right. But I've noticed that uh, they don't hesitate to jump on a jet plane and fly halfway around the world uh, just to amuse themselves, you know. And I'm, I, I do the same thing. Right. And just think how much fuel, how much uh, greenhouse gas you're putting into the atmosphere every time you fly across the Pacific Ocean. Right. right. So um, we all uh, like to speak these positive words, but... but we don't always make the choices that uh, need to be made. Yeah, walking, walking the talk. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I try even just to look at the, if I buy something at the store and thinking about soy milk in particular, you can buy stuff that's either from the East Coast or you can buy stuff from the Midwest or you can buy stuff that's from right here in California. And that actually has a smaller footprint, yes. you know, overall footprint. But yes. it actually costs more money. So I have that I have that struggle to deal with. Well, in my own family, we've had a struggle over, over Pellegrino. <laughs> yes. And uh, every time I see a Pellegrino bottle appear on the table, I think that that got flown here from Italy. Uh, yeah. Is that a good thing to do with our uh, jet fuel right. flying bottled water around, halfway around the world? Right. right, right. I think it's the same thing for olive oil. You know, buying domestic or local, really local, right. you know, as compared to you know the stuff that comes from Greece or Italy or someplace that's right. more exotic. Yeah. So more and more, we should look at things around us and ask: Is that is is acquiring that or buying that? really going to just promote an industry that's wasting fuel or um, polluting the environment. Right, right, right. I think that's part of the becoming more aware and actually becoming more active just within yourself is to be able to look at even those companies that you buy things from and what is their sort of nature, you know, how do they deal with, you know, um, say, you know, what, what do they purchase on the stock market or, you know, how are they and other things that they do? I mean, it's, it's, you can look that deep if you want to. Well, I, and I think you should. Uh, in, um, among my friends, we've discussed Walmart, for mm. example, on occasion. And we've noted that Walmart now sells more organic food in their grocery stores than anybody else I read. They are converting a lot of their uh, electric supply to solar. With all these big roofs they've got on top of their big box stores, they've got a lot of room to install solar panels, and they're doing it. Mm-hmm. So even though it's, it's uh, in the past been great fun to uh, ridicule, ridicule or criticize Walmart, Walmart actually is taking steps 
and we're we're aware of it and we're paying attention. Right. That's great. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, I'm so glad for those kinds of things too. I mean, you, yeah. it gives you reason to feel better about you know some companies that I do sort of feel negative about. Right. You know, but nonetheless, they are doing some really great things. Like even the company Whole Foods, I know that they they promote all sorts of things. You know, yeah. that they're organic and 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 yet there's you can read on a periodic basis about well you know some of these things really may not be as organic as as promoted. You know, and then yet. I mean, as a consumer, you just have to pay so much attention, you know, which I guess that's part of what we're talking about is yeah. paying attention. Yeah, I think the joy of preparedness is all about being com- becoming more conscious of, yeah. of every, everything in your life. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, I met Bob at a, our neighborhood safety meeting, um, and we were delighted that <laughs> you were there um, and you moved into our neighborhood. Do you have any advice for people from, from a seismological point of view of why you should do neighborhood safety and disaster preparedness? Any thoughts? Well, one reason to do neighborhood safety is that history shows that in the wake of a disaster that the, most of the first responders are your neighbors. Uh, this was demonstrated in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake where uh, a lot of people who got trapped because of falling freeways or other structures uh, were pulled out by, by neighbors or people who were nearby. So um, you should look at your neighbors as as your potential savior mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, work with them. Uh, beyond that, it, it helps uh, for neighbors to... Um, be aware of what the hazards are around them or in their house. I uh, have lectured some of my kids repeatedly about heavy objects that are in in high places. Mm -hmm. And I actually got one of my kids to take a big uh, jade plant down off a piano because the kids played typically uh, below that piano. And that huge pot would have done some serious damage. So Mm -hmm. just taking heavy things off of high places is uh, one thing that can be done. Mm -hmm. And encouraging your neighbors to um, do the usual things like strapping water heaters to walls and uh, figuring out where their uh, gas line runs and uh, how they're going to get into or out of their neighborhood in the event of a disaster. Uh, A lot can be done at the neighborhood level, I believe. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Just knowing who has... Uh, special skills and special needs uh, is really especially critical. who has a chainsaw and, know, right. and, 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 and knows, knows how to use knows it. how to use it. Right, right, right. Well, and you guys live a little bit out in the country, so also knowing you know who has you know other kinds of equipment and the distances between and who has special yeah. needs. I think that's right. another one. Is, is we also live in an area where there's only one way out. Uh, mm. We both live on uh, dead end roads, mm-hmm. cul de sacs, and mm-hmm. uh, re- realtor. Uh, terms and we have a, a bridge that we have to cross that's really a, a low water bridge right. uh, mm-hmm. so in the event of a flood with uh, falling trees and things like that we're pretty much on our own mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. so I mean the, I gave you some map your neighborhood information um, today and, and some of what's in that is uh, a schematic on how to be able to organize around some of these neighborhood kinds of issues. I mean, I th- and I know there are other programs around. Santa Rosa has something called the COPE program. Mm-hmm. When you were in Pennsylvania or other parts of the U.S., are you aware of any of those kinds of programs? Uh, we lived on a 60-acre farm pretty much out in the middle of nowhere in western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we didn't really have neighbors. I mean, uh, you know, we're having 
trouble getting used to all these neighbors here in uh, in Sebastopol. Right. But uh, and uh, we were not a part of community organizations, um, so we were pretty much off on our own. Mm-hmm. But because we were um, we lived on a farm and we weren't really farmers, but we lived on a farm. We and we had to be pretty self reliant. We had to. Uh, we were sort of. Uh, on our own in many respects mm-hmm. so we had to be aware of what was around us and and uh, take care of ourselves pretty much but mm-hmm. um, I'm not aware of any effort in that area uh, around Pittsburgh uh, you don't have earthquakes to speak of you don't have volcanoes uh, we have a few landslides but not where we were mm-hmm. um, the floods were mostly down along the Ohio River or it's tributaries and we didn't have flooding in our area too much so we were in a fairly hazard free environment where mm-hmm. we lived mm-hmm. the um, uh, worst thing that would happen would be occasionally a a, a windstorm would blow down a few trees tornadoes they, they we, we did not really have tornadoes on the scale of what they have in the Midwest, right. uh, but mm-hmm. there was a tornado that came through our area about 30 years ago, did mm-hmm. some damage. Mm-hmm. So we were in a fairly hazard-free area. I think our greatest hazard was cold weather. Mm-hmm. When we um, got in our car on February 24th at 5 a.m. in the morning to finally drive out here in our move, the temperature was minus 10 degrees. Wow. And at the last minute, I decided to take our bicycles off the rack on the back of the car because it was rather wobbly. When I went out at 5 a.m. to and grabbed a bicycle, my hand froze to the bike. <laughs> I had to breathe on my hand to get the skin off of the bike. Yeah, wow. uh, that, that's a hazard. <laughs> I would count that as a hazard. Yeah. But then, then, so being somewhat isolated, you know, because you don't really have anybody else around you, you do right. have to be self-reliant. But that's that isolation right. in itself turns out to be if you can't handle whatever the emergency is for yourself. Well, you have to think about uh, electric power going off. And uh, that happened occasionally. And uh, since we were on a well, uh, you can't pump water without electricity. Mm-hmm. So we had to think, where would we get water if we were an extended period without electricity? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we we uh, did a lot of canning and a lot of freezing of uh, food from our gardens, we had to worry about our deep freeze going down. And one time we had power lost for about three or four days. And... We had to haul all of our stuff out of the deep freeze into Pittsburgh to a friend who has a, had a deep freeze they weren't using. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had to think about things like that. Right, right. Well, that kind of thinking, I mean, when you get into the neighborhood, for some reason we, we let go of that, worrying about those kinds of things. I think just because of proximity to others and thinking, okay, well, I can just go over to Richard's or... Well, you tend to count on the, the, the ambulance being able to come, the fire engine being able to come. Uh, and uh, if, if those aren't close by, you, you have to think about what you're going to do if they can't get to you. Right, right. I mean, uh, where Richard and I live, we, I think we would have to think about access for emergency vehicles in the event of uh, a big windstorm, for example, mm-hmm. which could blow down several trees. Mm-hmm. might take a little while to get those cleared. And right. if, you know, a lot of the um, severe losses in, a, in the case of a disaster are because of cascading effects or or what seismologists like to call compound disasters. Uh, for example, the um, the great earthquake in 1906, uh, the damage 
was not done primarily by the earthquake. It was done by the fire that followed. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there have been instances where an earthquake or a volcanic eruption have caused uh, uh, wildfires to get going. So that's a secondary effect, which compounds the disaster. So when you have a a big windstorm or a a flood that comes through, uh, that can lead to other things. Loss of electricity. One one of my, well, loss of electricity is one. The one I kind of worry about out here in California is ruptured gas lines because Mm -hmm. um, in our neighborhood we have uh, PG&E with their gas lines, and uh, gas lines every now and then rupture. And uh, uh, you have to wonder um, if you had an earthquake and then a gas line ruptured, that could lead to uh, a bad fire, Mm -hmm. you know, if a few houses, especially if you have wind going at the time. A, a house could catch on fire and could spread. Right. Uh, those are the kind of things I think deserve a lot of neighborhood attention is uh, the compound, the cascading effects of, uh, of a disaster. Yeah, it's a great way of saying it, actually, I think. Um, and to go to the, to the PG&E situation, um, I think about two times a year, PG&E comes into Sebastopol and puts on a uh, I think it's about 60 or 90 minutes, something like that, um, information about the gas lines. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, you know, it's a promo thing for them, but nonetheless it's a lot of safety information that comes out. And they, they point out where the big pipes are in yeah. Sebastopol and the branches and give you the phone number and the, and the website to be able to find out, you know, like what is in your area, you know, so the people can know. A lot of people, it really freaks them out to find out yeah. that, you know, that there's a three-inch pipe that runs, you know, along their neighborhood. Well, I think that... Uh, pipeline rupture down around San Bruno right. a few years ago uh, yeah. alerted uh, people to the, the oh, yeah. danger of all that. Right, right, right. That's what so, it takes. So map your neighborhood. Uh, what do they say about uh, supporting each other by, when there's a fire? Well, I, I think specifically in the map your neighborhood one, which is what wouldn't work in your guys' neighborhood, one of the things they say is is that everybody should have a fire extinguisher and you take your fire extinguisher and put it out at the curb. Right. Of course, you guys don't have curbs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a lot of people around Sebastopol don't right. have curbs. But, I mean, essentially it's really to deal with, to do with that, you know, to right. deal with what, what can you bring to bear on it, which is going to be a fire extinguisher. But I think working together to also know, like fire breaks, you know, I mean, around property. I mean, it's like 100 feet, right? So Supposedly, you're supposed to keep 100 feet clear. I mean, I see that all the time, that that's not happening in right. areas so that if something were to happen, it would do just like you're talking about. I mean, it would just take off. If there was the slightest wind at all, it would just take off and engulf these areas that have not been, you know, appropriately treated. Right. I think, I, yeah, but I think we need, as a neighborhood, uh, need to think of strategies of how we're going to respond to a, a fire together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and support each other with the fire extinguishers. In our neighborhood, we don't have curbs, but we can still have fire extinguishers that they're ready for each other. And you have wells. I mean, that yeah. would be the thing, too, is is to be able to, you know, like, you know, um, who might have, like, that extra well that they don't use very often or whatever it would take, but just some amount of discussion in the neighborhood <clears throat> of, you know, like, what would happen, who has a generator that could be allocated specifically to a well, you know, and know where the wells are in case there is a fire but no electricity, you'd still right. be able to deal with it from the well. I mean, there's the strategies like that. Right. I appreciate that you're saying that. That's part of what I think the Map Your Neighborhood program does is it just throws out some opportunities for people to get these kinds of conversations going, yeah. you know, for somebody 
anybody to say. I, I use this example frequently, actually, is, is that the, one of the times that I made a presentation to a neighborhood and we were sitting in somebody's living room and we were looking across the street at a guy whose garage was completely built out with shelves and almost full of stuff. And everybody knew that he was a Costco guy, you know, and then everybody's staring at him and I'm talking to him about supplies and things. And he's, and he's thinking, no, 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 no. Don't be thinking about my garage. But before it was over, he offered his garage yeah. as a place where people could bring their extra materials and everybody would know. And before the meeting was over, another person piped up and said, well, I've got an extra shed in my backyard that if you have extra tools, we could put all the tools in that place. He wanted to participate in the same way that the other family was participating. And then that sort of caught on, you know, and that's what that's, I think, what these neighborhood type programs are really about is to be able to get that sort of energy going is to spark that energy. Right. Um, you have any other advice for neighborhoods? Well, the, I, I know in your material you also talk about elderly people right. and uh, people who might not be able to take care of themselves as well. And so I think that deserves a lot of attention. Uh, there are a lot of old people out here in California. They they uh, they like they like the weather, and, and I'm I'm one of them. So uh, uh, I can As compared to ten below. <laughs> compared to ten below, uh, uh, but. Um, some people are in situations where they might not be as able to take care of themselves as others, and so I think it's important to know uh, where those folks are and and what they might need, and to uh, try to anticipate it. Mm-hmm. And and um, the signs in the windows are a good thing, but uh, I think you need more than that. You need people who are going to knock on their door and make sure they're up and about and uh, can and are, are not lying under a piece of furniture that's on top of them or something. Right, yeah. unable to put that sticker right. out at right. the yeah. end. What, what Bob's talking about is the map your neighborhood okay or help sign. So one side is a help sign and the other side is okay. Yeah. So you put that on in your in your window if, if you need help or if you're okay. But I think if you don't yeah. see that sign, you should knock on the door or have, have you know, people... People should be aware of who's around them and exactly. where they are in the right. wake of a disaster. Right. That is a big part of the that map your neighborhood against or like the schematic of how to be able to deal with a neighborhood is to know who has what needs. Yeah. And then also that when something does happen, there is the designation of the meeting place that yeah. we will all come to this place first. Mm-hmm. You know, and then from there they would send a team around yeah. to all the houses, knock on doors, look at those signs, and then do another run. You know, because that okay could turn into a help. That's you know, right. That that person. So there's there is a process. I mean, and it's it's identified. It's it's actually a program that came out of the out of Washington State, and they they had a really sizable grant. So they did a really good job of condensing the information in a way that's palatable and easy for people to be able to incorporate into their neighborhood if they just do it. I mean, you have to do it, but nonetheless, the, these ideas are are available within that program. Yeah. How would people learn more about Map Your Neighborhood? <laughs> Richard, you're so sly. <laughs> um, well, you can you can email or call me, for one. Um, you can email me at um, s-j-i-r-r-e-l-s at gmail.com. Um, Could you repeat that? I can. It's um, s-j-i-r-r-e-l-s at gmail.com. And you can also call me at 707-799-2204. We also have a program called CERT that's in that's in um, Sonoma County in particular, but certainly is, is a program that we've had here in the in the in the West County for a while. Community emergency response teams, 
and it actually has a series of classes, which we haven't been giving the classes for a little while, but it actually is training individuals to be prepared. And then the Map Your Neighborhood program was a program that, that we incorporated because we, we wanted to branch out, you know, knowing myself what to do is good, but it's not, it's not so helpful. I mean, it would be more helpful if more people in my neighborhood had either that individual training or at least had that sense of how could we work together without necessarily having to have any particular training. But finding out who has the chainsaw, the four-wheel drive, the extra generator, you know, the skills, you know, to do certain things, who's the nurse or the doc or whatever in the neighborhood, you know, those are really, really important things for people to be able to do. So it's not just about individual preparedness in my mind any longer. Obviously, that's why we're doing this show. You know, it's really to be able to get a larger message out that, that, you know, come together with as many people as you can, including at your work. I mean, you know, whatever is going on at work, you could be with those people when something happened and, and likely will, you know, so there's a lot of different ways of being able to bring general information to bear in any situation that's going on. So I think we should take a break and then we'll come back and talk about music. Why why do we need to prepare? Okay. So, oh, I I would like to say you you might not know this when we had a fire in our neighborhood, the the fire engine got lost and ended up the streets <laughs> streets down the place so it's important for your for your neighborhood to let your fire uh, fire office engine department know where you are and how to get there okay bob <laughs> bob hamilton seismologist so in your earlier days you you tried to get people to work together in the middle east i understand I did. It wasn't uh, in my early days. It was really in the 1990s. Uh, and um, we, uh, I got involved with a program in the United Nations called the International Decade for Natural Hazard Reduction. Sort of a misnomer because you don't really reduce the hazard. You reduce the losses caused by the hazard. But anyway, uh, the so-called IDNDR uh, under the UN went on for the decade of the 1990s. It was proposed by uh, Frank Press, a famous seismologist who was Jimmy Carter's science advisor. And um, Frank proposed the decade, and the uh, UN adopted it. And I spent two years in Geneva as the director of the secretariat for the uh, uh, IDNDR. I was in Geneva from 1990 to 1992, so I had an opportunity to work with a lot of countries around the world that were interested in trying to mitigate the impact of natural disasters, uh, including earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, tropical cyclones like hurricanes, typhoons, and so on, all wildfires. And um, so I had a lot of exposure to uh, trying to build bridges to, but, uh, among countries and uh, between cultures. Mm-hmm. Then uh, toward the end of the 1990s, I was involved in a program in the Middle East uh, we called it reducing earthquake losses in the eastern Mediterranean region, or uh, we also called it peace through seismology, <laughs> just am- among ourselves. <laughs> yeah. but, but the idea was to try to um, promote dialogue and cooperation among the countries, uh, including Israel and all of its neighbors, um, mostly Arab countries and Iran. Uh, 
I can't say we had much success in that area, but I think there are people in the region who got to know each other a little bit better, and maybe in the long run their their um, cooperation can emerge once a lot of the politics is gone. Mm-hmm. The, the Middle East is a particularly hazardous uh, region from the point of view of earthquakes. Most of the cities in the Middle East uh, have been destroyed one time or another by an earthquake. Uh, I'm not much of a bib- biblical scholar, but I know that in the Bible they describe a lot of these uh, disasters. The earthquakes are caused by what's called the Dead Sea Rift. It's a, uh, a fault very much like the San Andreas Fault that runs north-south through the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and on down into the Gulf of Aqaba, which is at the northern end of the Red Sea. And every now and then that uh, fault shifts and uh, knocks down the unreinforced masonry buildings that they have over there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they still run with unreinforced even after some some information? Pretty much. Uh, that's what they, they build with. They there aren't a lot of forests over there, so they're not able to cut down trees and build out of dimensional lumber like we do here in most of the states. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the houses are built with uh, cinder block or uh, bricks or just plain old mud. Mm-hmm. And um, those structures are brittle and heavy, and when they're shaken, they tend to collapse and kill a lot of people. Yeah, and we when we talked before, we were talking about how they, they build up. Sort of generationally in some That's cases. right. A lot of the buildings you see there have rebar sticking out of the tops of the columns because uh, when they have a, when the next generation comes along, they add another floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. my friends in the engineering community tell me it's very rare that those rebars are actually welded together. They're just sort of overlapped. And um, that doesn't provide much of a right. structural integrity from one story to the next. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, those buildings... Uh, become tombs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you were saying also that culturally um like say for israel and then the countries around them there there, there's there's such strong differences between each of them and i think you mentioned before sort of like in your view sort of historically based a lot of it's historically based but a lot of the differences are just due to simple economics Uh, some countries have a, a the infrastructure to support educating engineers and scientists and some don't uh, some of the best in- earthquake engineers in the world come from turkey and mm-hmm. turkey has a long history of earthquakes and um, so they have uh, promoted engineering earthquake engineering curricula in their uh, universities and a number of my colleagues at the usgs uh, during my time there they were uh, from Turkey, they were, mm-hmm. they, they're, they're Turkish nationals. Mm-hmm. Israel, of course, has uh, an advanced scientific and engineering capability, and uh, but in other countries of the Middle East, it, it's highly variable depending on the, the degree to which they've been able to maintain uh, an educational system, and also to provide careers for people who acquire that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's not so readily shared, that knowledge is not so readily shared between those cultures, I would assume. Well, the sharing of knowledge depends on politics mm-hmm. a lot. And um, there's in, among many of those countries, there's not a lot of uh, communication. Right, right, right. But, but I think that's the beauty and the joy and the power of disaster preparedness, is that you can begin to, to whittle that, that down a little bit. It w- in in between countries, between religions, between neighborhoods, you know, you can really 
open up the conversation, a dialogue between people that you, you won't. Well, you really need to. The uh, hazards don't observe political boundaries. That's right. <laughs> and the impacts of the hazards don't either. Uh, sometimes they're wholly within a country, but uh, more often than not, they they span about borders and uh, affect uh, different regions. Uh, floods are a perfect example. You know, a lot of times the uh, the, the headwaters of the river rise in one country, and then the impact is downstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And what's done in one country will directly impact what happens in another country. So mm-hmm. they, they really should cooperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The difficulty in that, I think, is sort of mirrored, though, I mean, in, in neighborhoods even, because we're sort of individual silos in our homes, much like I think we are in our cars. You know, we're sort of individual silos until we do that reaching out, you know, right. and then we start to connect in a, in a, in a different way, you know. And, and I, I think also of, like, the difference in values, like from within one family to another family sometimes might make it difficult to be able to even just sh- share, right. you know, that information or whatever because there's just a different set of values. You know, if I have purple hair and spikes all over my face or something like that, it might be a little bit reluctant to deal with me as compared to maybe somebody else that, that I would be more, you know, able to deal with. You know, just these values that set us apart, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then we do need things to be able to bring us together. Yeah, I have a friend that has uh, gang members in her neighborhood, and she went, oh, I can start talking about disaster preparedness and begin a, a dialogue with them. So it, it's really <clears throat> listening to you guys out there. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Another issue in, in many parts of the world is the role of women in this society right. because um, – uh, women play a key role in preparedness. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of times in the home, they're the, they're the, only, the, ones. Uh, the only ones who are there, yeah. and uh, they're often more aware of what hazards might be in the home. And in the wake of a disaster, often they're the one who's on, on site to deal right. with it. And as we know, in many countries, women are very marginalized in their role in the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Many benefits of disaster preparedness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I like that one a lot, frankly, because I think there's also a way that that sort of like in general, women are more willing to work together. I I, I think that's true. Yeah, right. I think we have some sense of like wanting to do it. I mean, I know I have a sense right. of wanting to do it myself first, mm-hmm. you know, and then you know get past that reluctance of reaching out. And I think women are, they, they they approach things like that a little differently. I think women are. It's, it's dangerous to generalize, but yes, I think yes. generally Especially women are more collaborative than men are. Yes. <laughs> now, I'm sure that your listeners will uh, point to examples where that's not true, but that's that's my opinion. Yeah. I think that's right. my experience, too, yeah. you know, is that there's there's more of a willingness there, you know. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a, there's, there is a downside to that, you know, because whatever it is that might need to be done in the moment, might not get done in that first moment, mm-hmm. but it'll probably get done in the third or the fourth moment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I want it to get done in the first moment. Yeah. You know, that's my thing. That's my drive. So there's, so these different drives that we have, I think it's good. But I, I think it's, it's a great comment that we need to you know, incorporate that example mm-hmm. of that readiness to collaborate. And that is something that as I've gotten older, I've found to be more valuable, as yeah. I was saying about the whole group situation. I mean, I really feel like uh, what's the, there is value in coming together with a group just because of the way human nature is, is no one person can 
do it all, think it all, you know, be all. It, it really takes a group. And when we're talking about an emergency or a disaster, which is over, you know, overwhelming everything that we have going on, mm-hmm. our capabilities, we, we need to work together. There's just no two ways about that. We need each other. Yeah. Well, another reason for that is uh, to build in, in building community involving uh, men, women, and children is that preparedness often costs money. And um, money is always in short supply. Uh, there is a lot of competition for financial resources. And if, mm-hmm. if you're going to try to redirect resources toward preparedness, it ultimately is a political decision. Mm-hmm. And you have to build community support so that the politicians will be brave enough to redirect the resources, mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to spend money to um, uh, retrofit a hospital, for example, as opposed to uh, retrofitting a bridge or uh, re- or filling in the potholes, uh, that's a redirection of resources, and it requires support for the politician or the decision maker who has to uh, redirect those resources. So, um, all elements of society are important to try to build a political consensus to take these preparedness actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, I really think it's true. Again, going back to the neighborhood situation too, is 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 being as you were saying. I think the group could actually you know mobilize resources faster and maybe yeah. even more resources, obviously, than any one person could. Well, depending, you know. But I mean, probably mobilize more um, um, resources just by virtue of the group, you yeah. know, and the support. I think you're absolutely right about supporting those um, initiatives, you know, that that are in this direction for for preparedness or mm-hmm. or you know recovery is another thing that I think is really really important for people to look at is what does it take to recover from something that might happen? You know, it's not just the preparation piece, but there's also that piece that happens afterwards, which is typically a more elongated and intense period than the actual event itself. You know, is what does it take for us to recover, not just respond, but actually recover from events? It's always easier to find money in the wake of a disaster to repair what the disaster caused than it is to get money in advance to head off something that may or may not happen in the next few years. That's the tough sell. Right, right. Even though it's cheaper. Usually. It it probably is. (laughs) Yes, considerably. But in some cases, you might spend the money and uh, nothing for the rest of your lifetime. Right. 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 And uh, some people might wonder, well, was that really worth spending that money? It's just like uh, retrofitting your house for an earthquake that may not come for 50 years. Right. Right. Uh, would it have been better to have taken a vacation to Hawaii instead? <laughs> or something like right, that? right. I think that is what people are dealing with. Well, you know, we all do it's that. It's always com- competition for resources. Right, right. Yeah, I've right. thrown away earthquake preparedness food that has rotted and grown up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's a cycling process to be able to do that. And I've done the same thing. And, and, the, and the story that I use is I have a go bag. It's not in my car now. It's actually at home. But I keep 200 bucks in it. But it, there's not always $200 in it because I'm robbing it. Right. <laughs> you know, I go in and steal those 20s or 50s or whatever because right. I need it in the moment, you know. Yeah. And I'm I'm fairly aware of this stuff, you know. But you still do those kinds of things. You know, we, nobody is going to be totally prepared all the time, I think. So can you – let's go back to building bridges in the Middle East. What have you learned? What was successful? Well, it's hard to uh, generalize about the Middle East. Uh, it's true. The, the um, 
What, what I've learned is that the importance of institutions. Um, if, if there's not an organization in a country, typically either a, a, a university or a government ministry or a government agency, to um, provide continuity and um, a, a source of, of um, support both for education and for implementation, then uh, it then it becomes just an individual effort, and and individuals come and go, and mm. uh, they don't have the um, access to resources. They don't have the means to actually implement anything. So, I I, I would argue that uh, it's extremely important in developing countries and even developed countries to pay a lot of attention to uh, institution building. Uh, infrastructure, uh, the uh, ability to educate people, to um, provide them a career, to uh, give them some kind of a means for uh, bringing forth the knowledge that they they gain. Uh, that, that's got to be a high priority. And many of the countries uh, in, in many parts of the world, uh, they might have an economy that's uh, uh, going ahead, but they don't have the... Uh, Educational apparatus, or uh, or the the ministries, or the agencies, to implement uh, things, and and that, that that's always a, a weakness that's very difficult to overcome. I, I, in the in uh, my work with the UN and and in the Middle East, I've met a lot of really smart, highly motivated people, but um, it, it's very difficult for them to achieve anything. And all too often, they they work in their own country for a number of years and achieve some success in their education or their credentials, and then they, they move to the United States and become a professor in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, or something like that, you know, because it gives them a place where their family can grow up and stable place, and, right. and then uh, they don't go home. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the, the country doesn't benefit. So it, it takes a... It takes a um, a political environment, a uh, an economic environment, where um, science and engineering and and um, other aspects of preparedness and mitigation can uh, t- flourish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were looking there when you were there, pretty much at like the government level. Well, we were over there as representatives of uh, the United States, uh, government agencies, and so forth. Uh, and we were dealing with scientists and engineers who often were um, uh, had positions within government agencies in the different countries. But mm-hmm. but but there were also uh, academicians as well, uh, some from private universities. So although this all was sort of had the aura of government sponsorship, it was really a collection of people both from universities and private sector in some cases. So it was a mixture of individuals. But it it was viewed as uh, an attempt to get the countries working together better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, one of the uh, subtexts to the whole thing was to try to promote dialogue between Israel and uh, its neighbors. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you for doing that. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I welcome the opportunity. It was a great opportunity to see that part of the world and to gain a better understanding of what they're up against. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you want to talk more about that? Do, any other insights into being there? 
Well, the, 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 let me shift it a little bit. You know, yeah. when, um, in, in the early 70s, when uh, doors were opening to China and the Soviet Union, uh, usually the first entree was uh, uh, some kind of behind-the-scenes secret negotiations, you know, mm-hmm. to open the doors. But then the next thing was the ping-pong team went, right. like, like to China. <laughs> right. But the third thing that happened was the scientists went. Uh, for example, when, uh, when Nixon and Kissinger opened the door to China, they signed an agreement to exchange uh, ten scientific delegations each way. And it turned out that the area of earthquake prediction which turned out to be not possible. But anyway, the area of earthquake <laughs> prediction was one that both China and the United States chose to send delegations. Mm-hmm. And I got to go in uh, 1974 to China for a whole month wow. as a member of the uh, earthquake uh, delegation from the U.S. And then I, uh, I had a job where I, I helped to show the Chinese delegation around the United States when they, when they came over here. So. Mm. Um, and then, in the same in the Soviet Union, I got to go to the Soviet Union in 1973 for a whole month. Again, as as the Cold War softened a little bit, um, they turned to the scientists mm-hmm. and engineers to build bridges because it was viewed as not political and humanitarian because mm-hmm. we were dealing with earthquake disasters and that kind of thing. So, um, science often can be used to help build bridges. Mm-hmm. And that that same idea was promulgated in the Middle East on that later effort that I went on. But uh, I'm all for that kind of thing because uh, it's hard to argue that um, uh, applying scientific knowledge to reduce human suffering is a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. So you can... You can go over there and feel like you're really a good guy and at the mm-hmm. same time learn a lot about what goes on in those countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm probably bringing a lot of information to bear. You know, I mean, th- th- I would assume that science here in the U.S., especially at that time, really had a lot to bring to them. It, it, it did. Um, in, in the case of China, uh, in 1974 was toward the end of the uh, Cultural Revolution. And a lot of the uh, scientific institutions had been taken over by peasants. Mm-hmm. So we would uh, go to uh, what had been a research institute, um, but was now uh, basically a political organization. Most of the scientists were either out picking cabbages or were uh, somewhere not to be seen. And, and the people we ended up talking to were basically politically motivated, motivated. Uh, mm. in many cases, former peasants who are now kind of running things. So there, there was a lot of pseudo-science going on, and and um, uh, there were a lot of claims coming out of China at that time about successes in earthquake prediction, which really, in hindsight, turned out to be mostly bogus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really had not made much progress, but they were claiming a lot of things like animals howling in the night before an earthquake right. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you don't take to that eh? <laughs> well um the, there's been a lot of discussion during my career about earthquake prediction and basically as it stands right now it can't be done hmm. uh you can predict floods based on rainfall data you can kind of predict tornadoes you predict hurricanes now with satellites very accurately predict right. windfall with landfall within an hour or two to some extent, you can even predict volcanoes. Uh, with proper instrumentation, you can detect uh, the, the land swelling, uh, emanation of gases from a volcano, and uh, seismic activity as the magma moves up 
through the crust of the earth, but earthquakes cannot be predicted. Hmm. Uh, you can identify areas that are more likely to have earthquakes than others. You can uh, you can at least make an attempt at assigning probabilities of events, and you can identify areas that are due mm-hmm. for an earthquake because uh, it's along a plate margin and you know the plates are moving at a certain rate and there hadn't been an earthquake there for a long time, so stresses must be built up. But as far as predicting the day or an hour of an event, that cannot be done. Uh, so uh, with all these reports coming out of China about successes, uh, it naturally piqued our interest, but uh, in hindsight, it just was a bunch of baloney. <laughs> So your dog doesn't predict. You can't predict, of course. <laughs> or maybe as well as anybody else. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, as you know, I'm interested in disaster preparedness and getting that message out, the, the effectiveness of, of working cooperatively with your neighbors and your family and, and your community um, and the power in it and uh, the joy of it, uh, getting to meet like I got to meet Skip, I got to meet you. I get, I'm talking to you now because of this radio show. Then um, I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I hadn't put myself out there and say, "Hey, I'm, I like, I like this message." Um, but I do find it to be a hard sell. Like peace in the Middle East is a, is a hard sell, and I was talking with Anna Marie Jones from Card. She runs a wonderful program in Oakland. And she's been on the radio program uh, herself. And we're just talking about where to go from here. What, 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 what can we do that will make a difference? And uh, we didn't come up with anything when we talked yesterday. But I realized this morning that we need to market it. And, and Anna Marie Jones is a marketing whiz. Uh, but we don't market it to the people I think would make the most impact. And, and that's what you just mentioned, the, the political institutions and uh, the economic, uh, and changing the e- economical environment. I really like that idea. I, th- I think that's what's missing in what we're doing. Um, there's a tendency for first responders in the American Red Cross not to participate um, or kind of turn their backs on on what we're doing uh, to get the community together. Um, and so I th- we need to market it much, much, much better than what we're doing. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. The- I do have thoughts about that. The... Um- It's a major point of discussion among my colleagues, uh, both in the domestic program and and international programs, is is to how do you convince people to actually do something, and uh, which is marketing, I guess. And the um, since we're scientists and engineers, uh, we tend to talk in our own vernacular along those lines, and um, we always come back to um, two stages. The first is to uh, do a hazard assessment. That is, you you try to figure out what hazards are you actually exposed to. I mean, here in uh, Sebastopol or Northern California, we know that earthquake earthquake is one hazard that we have. We know wildfires are hazard. Uh, we know uh, floods are hazard, and so on. So you try to figure out what hazards 
you're exposed to and try to do that as quantitatively as you possibly can to be convincing. And then you take it one step further and you produce what's called a risk assessment. In other words, what kind of damage are the hazard, damages could the hazards cause? Um, and and unless you can, in some sense, quantify the risk, that is the potential losses from the hazards, uh, we found you can't really get the ear of a politician, because if you just run around chicken little like saying the right. sky is falling in. People are going to say, "Well, let me know when it starts to fall." You know, right. but if you can, if you could say uh, with some uh, evidence that the sky is falling in tomorrow, and this is what the, the sky falling is going to cause, then you can get their ear. So, I think in order to um, convince leaders that they need to spend resources on preparedness, you have to be able to make the case that there is a a, a potential loss lurking that has some likelihood of happening in the near future so that they can feel comfortable diverting resources to head off that loss. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it in the case of wildfires. Um, more and more uh, they are trying to remove un uh, understory or uh, brush in a forest mm -hmm. in certain areas, especially around uh, urban areas, right. to reduce the fuel that, that the fire could consume. Um, they're doing controlled bur burns. Um, more and more, they're questioning the practice of putting the fire out as soon as possible, especially if it's in areas where it's not going to burn close to a town, to try to reduce the fuel that, that will build up. Uh, in the case of uh, earthquakes, uh, uh, there's a very active program here in California to map the location of faults. Uh, this was the Alquist Priola Act, which came along a few decades ago. And so mm -hmm. now... Uh, geologists have done a very good job of mapping where the active faults are. So that if a community wants to build something in that area, uh, like a school or a hospital, uh, if there's a known fault, then uh, special precautions have to be taken. Um, so uh, uh, knowing the hazard is the first step, but then trying to understand better the consequences of the hazard occurring mm -hmm. is the next step. And with that information, then uh, you have a chance of influencing uh, preparedness decisions, I think. Mm -hmm. But without that, uh, it's hard to get attention. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, but, but what I'm interested in is, is not actually not so much disaster preparedness i'm interested in culture people getting together mm -hmm. cultures getting together yeah. and so the so there's a the positive benefits of preparedness to me and of bringing people together will totally transform our culture and and the planet so so how how do you market that do you, do you follow I, I follow um and but I don't have an easy <laughs> answer. To, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, uh, you know, people generally um, welcome community. Right. Uh, they um, like to be with their neighbors, especially the ones they get along well with. Right. And so um, that, that's why a lot of people belong to um, the the Rotary Club or, right. the, or uh, a church or uh, the Grange. The Grange. Yeah. Uh, 
they they like community. They like to be with the neighbors. They like to, so you can build on that. I think you, uh, people have an inclination. At least most people do. I think right. to want to be with others and to uh, enjoy their company. So you can build on that. Um, I think if they feel that the result of that will be more than just getting to know their neighbors, uh, that's an added benefit. That if they feel that they they might uh, reduce the chances of uh, family suffering or uh, economic setback, right? That's that's a plus. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think each of us feel the suffering in the Middle East. Yeah. That each of us, if we could do anything to bring the people of the Middle East together, we would do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think I believe that all people are really conscious of of other people's suffering and would yeah. and would do something about it if they could. And I and I see disaster preparedness as one of those things that you could do. Yeah. Because it it is doing something. Yeah. Uh, it gives you the opportunity to do something, and generally we don't have opportunities come our way that we recognize as being beneficial yeah yeah i think the situation with trying to provide the kind of information that a politician at at a local level would pay attention to would be really really worthwhile but i do think that it's a different message than the message that you take to the community because i think the community that that sort of like that financial reason for doing it you know it needs to be included i think in the in the conversation that you have with the community but i think there needs to be some other um Reason that people come together, and and I think I mean I've I've tried working with you know again training individuals to be more prepared, working with you know getting neighborhoods to come together and providing that at least that initial the initial ability the initial glue mm-hmm. to be able to come together. Yeah. But I think as you were saying, I mean individuals come and go, and that's what happens then to these these you know um, sort of like ground up efforts. Um, from the ground up, not ground up like ground <laughs> yeah, deep or anything like that. Right. Um, I think that's what happens to those efforts. You know, um, so so there's the top down requires a certain kind of message, and then from the from the group up requires another kind of message that that we I, I strongly believe can't be fear based. Yeah. That it has to be based in some other reason, the camaraderie, the willingness to come together, whatever the social elements are, and we incorporate that in, like, yeah. the Map Your Neighborhood efforts. I certainly agree with that. I think I think there's uh, experience shows that there's a lot that can be accomplished at no cost within a community, especially in the immediate aftermath of a, of a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that type of activity should be promoted without question Mm -hmm. at the same time uh, that community effort can help to promote larger efforts uh, that can only be done on a larger scale or that require a lot of money Mm -hmm. yeah that requires like the community the city backing yeah you know i mean i think about sebastopol i mean it requires then that they they be able not just willing but able to actually put some some funds to you know support of these kinds of programs and um, there are a lot of actions that can be taken that are really embedded in law or building codes and so you have to have a broader effort to influence that Mm -hmm. Um, seismologists like to uh, joke that the the codes are always dealing with the latest earthquake Uh, in in uh, in 1925 there was an earthquake that caused a dam to fail down in the santa barbara uh, area. 
So they established some state law that strengthened construction of dams. Then in 1933, there was an earthquake near Long Beach that knocked down a bunch of schools, fortunately on a weekend when the schools were not occupied. So then they established, they passed the Field Act that required a greatly strengthened, uh, a better building code for schools. Then in 1971, in the San Fernando earthquake, a bunch of hospitals fell there. So they strengthened the, the building code requirements for hospitals. So uh, to, to a seismologist or an earthquake engineer, this seems a little silly because you're just kind of dealing with the latest phenomena rather than looking at the whole thing. But by and large, California has greatly improved its building codes, mm-hmm. and that will have a lot of payoff in the long run. Mm-hmm. That can only be done at the state level or at, at, a, at a governmental level. Because mm-hmm. if you're trying to establish practices that are supposed to take place uh, throughout a profession or uh, within a, uh, a broad community, you've got to have higher level mm-hmm. understanding and agreement that that's what needs to be done. But uh, the support for such activity really comes out of the community, ultimately. Right, right. right. I think that is it. You know, I mean, yeah. we have we have FEMA in the United States or Homeland yeah. Security. I mean, we have that. I mean, again, in my mind, trying to push things down to the yeah. community level. And now they've sort of changed their tune to a degree yeah. to try to get the community to come up, meet, you know, come up and meet, you yeah. know, rather than just this anticipation that FEMA and first responders will be there for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, they will ultimately, but they may not be in the beginning. And that's where the first responders yeah. are truly your neighbors. Well, I was I was around at the time FEMA was established, and I have a lot of colleagues who work in FEMA and and uh, I've heard their frustrations over the years. They, they, a lot of their problems have to do with floods. And they um, like to tell stories about houses that just every year get flooded. And every year FEMA has to shell out more money. And so right. the top-down answer to that is move the community. Mm-hmm. And there actually have been communities in the Mississippi Valley where they've uh, relocated them to higher ground. Um, that's usually not popular with the people who didn't get flooded who live in those communities. So yeah. it's, there's a lot of tension between uh, what individuals want to do, what what people on high think should be done, and uh, but that's the nature of politics, I guess. That happens mm-hmm. in the Russian River too. I bet. Yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even just you know different people at different times. You know, if they're not in an emergency, but I think about the building codes. You know contractors and people wanting to do work on their homes mm-hmm. you know they have issues with these with yeah. these codes yeah. you know and i you know I, I what has always made sense to me is is that it's about public safety Mm-hmm. That's what those codes are about. It's about public safety. So it yeah. is. It is this upper layer looking down and saying, "Okay, yeah, we, we need to do these things because it's in it's it's for the betterment of everybody, yeah. and it is going to cost you to do this thing, you know, because you need to participate with what is required mm-hmm. for the community." And some people are just not into that at all. Yeah, you know, I mean. I mean, in very negative ways at times, not just circumventing them, but being very aggressive in how they respond, you know, to the building director or the building inspector or whatever, you know. But I mean, I think Sebastopol, to come back to us, I mean, I'm... I sort of struggle with being able to, you know, come from the grassroots and meet the 
the city's needs, mm-hmm. you know, and I really appreciate what you're saying. And I think, I think Richard has worked like at the county level, at that higher level, more, more intensely and over a longer period of time than myself. I've just been trying to work with, okay, how do we do it between individuals mm-hmm. and then branching out into the neighborhood? But, but my, my, my thought for if there's a next phase for me in particular is to really look at, okay, well, how can I get the, the city to actually be more invested in what's going on? And, and that's where I think the rationales, like, like you were describing, start to come into play. Yeah. Is can you make the cost? You need to do cost-benefit yeah. you know, because there can be benefits for spending money to do things that are really just mitigating a potential hazard, mm-hmm. you know, but you're doing something that actually has a positive effect. You know, you're not just doing it for this thing that may not ever happen, which you, that may be one of the reasons that you're doing it. But, but again, it has sort of a short-term effect, and that has a dollar value. And so being able to – I think that's where I have done some reading at least that, that, that <clears throat> businesses, large businesses, large corporations have started to look at what are the actual benefits to us spending those monies. Those monies aren't just a cost, but there's actually yeah. a benefit for us. One, in reputation, if nothing else. Yeah. And we use becoming independent. I use becoming independent when I talk to people. I mean, they're, do you know who becoming independent is in Sonoma County? You might not. You might not. They're, they're no. a group that they work no, with um, um, emotionally and developmentally um, challenged individuals, mm-hmm. and they provide work for them as well as services in association mm-hmm. to them. They're really a great program. They're th- three-county wide. Yeah. yeah, and Anna-Marie Jones that, that Richard was talking about worked with them to develop mm-hmm. a, a response and recovery-type program for themselves, mm-hmm. and um, they... Like within the first 30 minutes, this general generalization, but yeah. within the first 30 minutes after the Napa quake, they had contacted all of their clients in the mm-hmm. Napa area. Yeah. And they knew exactly what was happening for these people because they had this network in place. Yeah. And they knew how to communicate to each other about what was happening. Yeah. You know, and, and personally, I think that if I was the parent of or a family friend of somebody that was a client of becoming independent, that would enhance their reputation in my mind. Mm -hmm. I would feel really good about what they were able to do. I think that's a benefit that businesses, larger businesses are starting to look at now is how it might enhance their reputation, their standing in the community. And and I'd like to find a way to be able to utilize that on, on a more local level. Yeah, that same kind of. Well, well speaking of businesses, um, there, there, there's a lot more attention now to the subject of business continuity mm-hmm. than before. I found um, there are primary losses from from a disaster, and there are secondary losses. Primary losses are like a building falling down or or somebody getting injured or killed. A secondary loss is say a loss of employment. If if a business has to shut down right. as a result of the disaster, that has long term effects. And uh, in, in, um, in 1989, in the Loma Prieta earthquake, Santa Cruz, of course, was hit very hard, and their downtown area was virtually uh, wiped out mm-hmm. right in the, in the heart of the city. And, and that was a huge economic setback because of all the loss of employment in that area. So business continuity is, is, a, is a primary effect that needs a lot of attention. And usually the losses, secondary losses often don't get added up when you talk about the cost of a disaster. 
So, well, and, they cert- and, and the impact on individuals, uh, especially mm-hmm. people who aren't as able to take care of themselves as others, that, that's, that's a loss that often doesn't get yeah. added in. Yeah, I think the, the TV and, you know, those, the, the reporters pay attention to the first two, or the, the first and the third, yeah. but not necessarily that middle piece. And that middle piece is really, I think that's the, the recovery, that's a whole recovery process for, yeah. for business. I think the business continuity is one of those places where that's sort of what I, that, that's sort of the, the place that I see is really necessary. Also, because it really does affect your employees, mm-hmm. the, your customers, you know, yeah. and that you have to start to, when you, when you can talk to businesses, you have to start to talk to them about what's happening downstream for them and mm-hmm. actually what's happening upstream for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if the guy, like I used to be involved with a medical clinic and we needed to know whether the people in front of us providing services to us, but had our medical record information, whether those people were actually responding to something that was called HIPAA Mm -hmm. that came out, you know, where you were taking care of personally identifiable information, we had to check with them. Mm -hmm. And then we had to be able to check with the people that that we were sending information to below us, if you will. We had to check with them to make sure that they were holding the information in the same way. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of thinking that actually businesses really need to think about, too. Well, if I, you know, my business would be impacted if I can't sell. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what is my supplier doing to make sure that if I'm up and running that they can get things to me? Well, mm-hmm. I might be up and running and they can't because they didn't plan on the fact that we only have two, three, three separate ways of being able to get into Sebastopol. Yeah. You know, or can I sell the things that I have on hand, you know, the um, Furcrest market is, is a really good example. They went down a couple of times when PG and E went down and they, you know, like ice cream goes in a couple hours, mm-hmm. meat in five or six hours or something like that. So they went out and bought themselves a huge generator. Yeah. The benefit to them is, is that when the, when the electricity goes down in the neighborhood, people know that they're up and running. Yeah. So they'll come there. Yeah. People will come there. And they've had that happen with just two or three or four hours of the electricity being out that people know that they can come there. Yeah. That's, a, that's a real benefit. But they had to think about that. Yeah. And then when we actually, I talked with one of the fellows there and we were talking about, he said, oh, yeah, we've got like, we can run our generator for, for eight hours. And I go, okay, well, where's the fuel? He goes, yeah, the fuel's right there. And I said, okay, well, what happens when you run out of that? Yeah. And he just immediately went right to, okay, well, my suppliers and I did this and that. And, this. and it, it made sense to him because he had already been thinking yeah. Upstream and downstream. So business continuity, I think that's yeah. really, really important. I think it's really, really important. I've been s- sitting here listening to you, and I realize I'm not intelligent enough to ask you really good questions. <laughs> 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 because you're so bright and has such great experience. So what I, are, I hope my wife hears that. <laughs> <laughs> so... so, so would you coach me on how, what questions they ask you? I, well, um, one question that people often ask me when they knew I was going to move back to California right. was, are you sure you want to move out there with all those earthquakes? Right. Because back in uh, western Pennsylvania, we don't have those kinds of threats. Right. And uh, I, I, I said, well, I'm, I'm doing it with my eyes wide open. Because, first of all, I know where the active faults are. And uh, Sebastopol is 
fortunate in that we lie nicely between the San Andreas Fault Zone <laughs> and the uh, Healdsburg Rogers Creek Hayward Fault. We're so we're earthquake uh, sandwich. We're, uh, if you can live in California toward the coast, this is probably a fairly good place to be because uh, the faults are pretty well mapped up here and uh, they don't run right under us. They're somewhat removed. I said, um, secondly, I'm going to live in a house that's not on a mud flat because uh, when an earthquake occurs and the ground shakes, the greatest amplitude of shaking is on soft soil. For example, in, uh, in the 1906 earthquake and in, uh, and in the uh, 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, the greatest damage in San Francisco was in filled land, like China Basin or the Marina, Marina or things right. like that. So, so I would not be living out in the Laguna Mm-hmm. Um, at that area because that's soft soil and when you shake it, uh, it can liquefy, it can spread. But in general, the amplitude of shaking is higher. So I would try to live on uh, bedrock or mm-hmm. uh, some rock that's fairly substantial. Mm-hmm. I, t- I told my friends, furthermore, I'd live in a single-story house that's made of wood, uh, that's a wood frame house okay. because wood frame houses tend to... Um, be stronger and mm-hmm. flexible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, they don't collapse. Uh, uh, and so, uh, I would not expect if there were a strong earthquake to have substantial damage to my house. I wouldn't expect to have anything fall on my head. And uh, so, I'd feel pretty uh, safe great. in coming here. So, in the bedrock idea for the Sebastopol area, I mean, I've heard that that's actually true that there is a solid amount of bedrock out this way. Well. You know, when you drive into, into Sebastopol from Santa Rosa, it really stands out in your mind. You're out there, you know, after you leave Santa Rosa and you head west, you kind of go down into, uh, I guess, the Laguna de Santa Rosa or whatever. And that's basically a sedimentary basin. Um, you know, it's uh, got a lot of soft soil out there, good fertile land. But then in the, in the distance, you can see the hills, you know, as you as you cross the bridge coming into town, Sebastopol's up a bit. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's up a bit because it hasn't eroded away. There's some rock here. And, uh, uh, you know, you go out in the hills, you can see outcrops here and there. So mm-hmm. there's bedrock around. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like... Uh, granite or anything like that but right. it's but there is bedrock and so the amplitude of shaking is tends to be mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. significantly mm-hmm. Well, i think the during 1906 the santa rosa was that whole liquefaction sort of idea i think was a big part of what was happening yeah. you know, in santa rosa also yeah and and so liquefaction is is a very important phenomenon it, it tends to it's like when you uh, pat your sand your foot on the sand at the beach and you can bring water up you know and you can make the sand uh, liquefy and and so this this the um, when liquefaction sets in uh, the bearing capacity of of soil diminishes so that it buildings tilt to the side or mm-hmm. they they can actually rip apart if the sediments spread underneath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Another question people often ask is about earthquakes elsewhere than California. And um, uh, a lot of people don't realize that some of the greatest earthquakes occurred in the east. Uh, the, uh, the, in 1811 and 1812, there were three magnitude 8 earthquakes in the central Mississippi Valley area. Uh, kind of southeastern Missouri, northwestern Tennessee, northeastern Arkansas, that area. 
and um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but uh, the, the threat there is that it's in the Mississippi Valley, and so it's in a sedimentary area, and there's a lot of industrialization along the Mississippi River, and should an earthquake, even magnitude 7, occur in that area, there's going to be a lot of damage because of the, of the uh, soft sediments. There'll be a great amplitude of shaking in that area and a lot of stuff built right on the riverbank. Mm-hmm. If you fly over that area, you can see all kinds of fertilizer uh, facilities so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then back east, there, there's even an earthquake threat there. In 1886, there was a magnitude, almost 7, earthquake uh, near Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, th- there's earthquake activity that continues back there. And they, they really are totally unprepared for uh, a reoccurrence of that. Mm-hmm. They don't have the building codes back east. They tend to use more uh, unreinforced masonry in their structures, like brick buildings mm-hmm. that don't have rebars in them. Right. And um, there's a lot of older – the advantage in California is the building stock is relatively new compared with the east. But if you look at the buildings in St. Louis or Memphis or Charleston or other places back east, you see a lot of brick buildings that often fall down of their own accord without an earthquake. And so you can just imagine what it's going to be like if there is a when there will be a reoccurrence back there. Right, right. I think that's true, though. I mean, I don't, I don't hear about, nor do I think much about earthquakes in other parts of the United States. You yeah. know, I mean, I do hear about them on a periodic basis, but it, right. it seems like there's a, they're small and, and they make a big deal out of them because it is somewhere else, but I don't actually think of the potential hazard. I mean, in some places in the Midwest, boy, it would be really, or on the East Coast, be devastating. Yeah. Well, we seismologists used to joke that uh, in terms of news coverage, one Easterner is equivalent to 10 Californians in terms of the amount of coverage it's going to get. It's true. It's true in sports. Right. Right. Sad. Sad. Hmm. Um, You met Tom Brokaw and Al Gore. Yes, I did. In um, in 1976, there was a a really strong earthquake in northeastern China uh, near a town called Tangshan. Uh, it killed about a quarter of a million people. And um, in the wake of every earthquake disaster, the media always goes looking for a, a convenient seismologist to interview. So uh, soon after that event, I, I was flown from Washington, D.C., up to uh, uh, New York to appear on the Today Show with Tom Brokaw. And so I had about a 10-minute interview with him. And uh, then again, uh, after another disaster, I was interviewed by uh, Diane Rehm on her radio program. Uh, I and a a volcanologist, we were talking about natural disasters in general, and I was the earthquake guy, and he was the volcano guy. Mm -hmm. That's great. And um, then another occasion in Washington, D.C., I was on uh, a TV program with Al Gore, and I I mentioned earlier that we were being interviewed. I had brought along a bunch of posters to illustrate various aspects of plate tectonics. And and the first question they asked about plate tectonics, Al grabbed my poster and put it up and gave a very lucid explanation of plate tectonics. That kind of continued through the interview, Al basically uh, stealing my thunder but expressing it far better than I ever would have. And uh, He's a very knowledgeable guy. He knows a lot about earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah, and you also mentioned you had the opportunity to sit and chat with him for a little while, and he was soaking it up. That's right. Uh, you know, before my, my image of most politicians is that they're mainly dishing it out, you know. But um, I had about an hour with Al before we went on the air, 
And uh, he asked me question after question after question about earthquakes and plate tectonics. And he, he, it, these were, it was genuine interest on his part. And, and uh, every time I would say something, he would elevate the conversation because he, he knew so much himself. Mm-hmm. So he, mm-hmm. I, I came away really impressed with his uh, interest and his knowledge. Right. Yes. My little bit that I know about him, I have read or seen about him, he's, he's that way with a lot of topics. Yeah. It seems to be who he is. I, I think he's genuinely interested and gen, genuinely educated about mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. scientific issues. Mm-hmm. And, and he comes from a good place as a, as a person well, with that information. Part of his uh, home state, Tennessee, is in the New Madrid seismic zone that I was talking about earlier. And mm-hmm. so he had some constituents that uh, would have uh, wanted him to know about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you, you'll notice anybody listening out there that we're not going to ask him about the difference between visiting with these people and visiting with us. <laughs> we're not even going to bring that up. <laughs> so I had one other question for you, though, because um, the... Natural hazard reduction was something that um, was mentioned before, and you said was sort of a misnomer. Yeah. And I wanted to. I think that's a really important point for for, for maybe us to spend at least a few minutes on. You had talked yeah. about the 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 hazard itself is something that you can't really get around. So can mm-hmm. we just dialogue about that for a minute? Yeah, a hazard is uh, the uh, occurrence of a phenomenon like a flood or a volcanic eruption or an earthquake. And so forth, and and um, of course, uh, a hazard, uh, an earthquake in the middle of Alaska, where there are in a place other than Fairbanks, where there mm. aren't many people, is not going to be a disaster because there's, no, there's there are no structures, there are no people there to impact. But um, what we're really concerned about is when a hazard interacts with. Uh, Civilization, if you want to use right. a mm-hmm. generic term, buildings and people, mm-hmm. and um, that's when a hazard can become a disaster because it can knock down structures, it can cause people to be injured or uh, killed, can yeah. can destroy infrastructure, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the the real attention is is on disasters or. Uh, uh, you know the impacts of hazards. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleagues like to talk about resilience in a community, and they, they've come to favor that word, which indicates that you you can't pre- often you can't prevent you can't prevent the hazard except maybe in a flood by building a dam or something like that. Um, but you can, um, and to some extent, you can mitigate the impacts. You can by better buildings and by better. Uh, Stronger overpasses or things like that. Maybe mm-hmm. you can prevent certain things from collapsing. But, but in the end, what you want a community to be able to do is to bounce back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want them to restore essential services. You want um, you, you don't want all the fire engines to end up buried under a pile of bricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want the fire engines to be able to get out there and deal with the fires. Same with uh, there was a case where uh, one community had all its police cars parked under a, a, uh, mm-hmm. a big concrete slab that kept the sun away. I think I remember this. But, yeah. but then the slab yeah. fell down and none of the police cars could be used. Wow. So, um, so you want to try to take steps that allows the community to deal to respond to the disaster and to bounce back and to restore normal life as mm-hmm. quickly as possible, which mm-hmm. means getting 
power back on, getting the roads open, getting, and in the end, getting jobs back, and getting the economy of the area. So this is resilience. This is the uh, where a lot of people like to focus their attention these days uh, mm-hmm. to try to anticipate what might happen and to head it off and to help the community re- get back in action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some things you can't, I mean, I think part of where I was going with that, appreciate what you're saying, and part of where I was going with that is is that the, um, uh, th- there, there are some things that you can't really do anything about. That's you know, right. It's just going to, it's just going to happen. That's even, right. the, even the result of the, 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 in the, well, so the better way to say it, Skip, is there's a response we, mm-hmm. we respond at first, and then we go through this recovery phase. Yeah. And I think that's a really important phase. And, and I think yeah. that's where this whole sense that we can't really do anything about the actual hazard. You know, I, I, we can't stop the earthquake, but we can do something about those potential effects of that. You know, and yeah. at least as you were saying before, I think do, do an assessment to know what they are. Yeah. You know, and then what sort of a risk do they really present? And I think that communities do that. And I, I think. The the, um, the residents within a community knowing what the community has done in, re- mm-hmm. in in those regards is really a good thing. But then we talk also to people about being able to do that just within their own homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, knowing what your own risks are, you know, to do your own assessments and then be able to figure out, well, you know, is it worth changing that door, spending five or six hundred dollars on that door because it's not safe, you know, as compared to, you know, the vacation kind of situation. Those kinds of discussions have to happen for people. I think that's right. You know, I I think one of the things that gets talked about, at least, you know, in in my world is is an all hazards approach. Yes. Is that there are some things that you do to respond and some things that you can do to recover and some things, therefore, that you can do to prepare um, that are common to all. There are some that are different. You know, fire is different than flood, you know, but there are some things that are common to all, you know, and I think that's where the CERT programs, the COPE programs, the Map Your Neighborhood programs are really sort of taking an all hazards approach so that Mm -hmm. we're not just dealing with earthquake. But I tell you what, it's, it's the earthquake that will get people to come to the classes. You know, it's mentioning earthquake or earthquake preparedness. And there just happened to have been one in the, in the recent, you know, last two weeks, people will come to that class. You know, if there was a fire somewhere, it's not nearly as much of a motivator. You know, if the Russian river floods, that turns out to be a motivator. But I mean, I think the sense of, of, of an all hazards approach is the way that, that we've been trying to at least sell yeah. The idea, because it, it really is. It's just such a well, tough sell. Well, I think that's a more logical approach anyway, because a lot of the um, services that the community needs to establish uh, provide those services regardless of what kind of a hazard it is, what kind of a disaster, you know, like um, medical services or fire or police or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it's whatever comes along. They deal with it. Right, and it, right. and it has to be integrated for all kinds of hazards. Yeah, yeah I think that's where at least we, we work directly with the fire department as far as this certain the map your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's where that whole sense of all hazards has really yeah. come to us anyway, is that's what they, that, that's what they have to deal with. And, and what they know is that they're dealing not only with natural hazards, but with uh, man-made hazards or industrial hazards, you know, like chemical spills right. or um, a, a tank car falling off the rails or mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, these um, 
so-called first responders. They deal with whatever comes along, and whether it's natural or man-made. Yeah, it's amazing, actually, what they're able to deal with. Yeah, you know, I mean, what they can approach um, without seemingly without being affected by it. I mean, I know that they are, but you know, their their training allows them to be prepared and you know to to feel prepared in in dealing with things, to be resilient, to be able mm-hmm. to deal with whatever comes at them. And I think again, that's part of the message in the CERT program, Map Your Neighborhood, or mm-hmm. Cope, or or any of the other things. Our, our message too is that you'll be better able in the moment to deal with this thing that's going to provide a certain amount of chaos yeah. to you and your family or your neighborhood. Um, but you'll be a little bit better prepared to deal with it if you can do these things ahead of mm-hmm. time and just become familiar with them. Yeah. Did you want to talk about pets in o- in Oakland? Well, uh, I know what you're referring to is the fire in Oakland uh, a number of years ago. I, I forget what year it was, but it must have been 15 years ago mm-hmm. or so. Then I know there were um, many, many houses, I think numbering in thousands, that were burned up in the Oakland Hills, up above uh, the uh, east of Oakland and Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I attended a number of meetings where the uh, problems associated with that were discussed. And one of the big problems had to do with pets. There were a lot of people who left their pets at home during the day because they went to work. And then when the fire broke out, uh, they headed home to get their pet while other people grabbed their pet and headed out. And a number of the the streets up in those hills were one-way streets. Right. And then, uh, so not only did you have... There were one-way streets because of the... Of the hills, the the terrain. Because of the fire itself. Not because of the fire. They were one-way, almost one-way streets to start with because up in the the hills... Oh, that's right. Okay. Up in the hills above Berkeley and up in uh, uh, Oakland, there are some pretty... uh, There's some rugged terrain. Single lanes. Yeah. And uh, maybe they're not one-way for long, but they're one way in certain segments. I've been on some of them. And so picture that, people trying to get out, people trying to get home to get their pets, and fire engines trying to get in to deal with the fire. Mm -hmm. And basically it was just a big traffic jam up in those hills and um, uh, resulted in uh, injuries and and, uh, damage that uh, could have been avoided had... A higher power been directing people what to do, but uh, but yeah, pets. I mean, you know, if you're at work and you hear there's a fire in your neighborhood and you your pet is at home, you want to get that pet and get out of there. Mm-hmm. But that that might lead to uh, a lot of complications. Well, I see. in what you're saying also is that. Um, if you were there and, and ready to leave and you were bringing your pet and we had talked ahead of time right. th- that I could call you and say, hey, could you go pick up my pet? That's right. And there would have only been one car. That's right. You know, trying to get out of that place. That's right. So and I, and that, that's yet another reason for uh, community involvement in preparing for these disasters. Yeah, that's also, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, just having those having those chats, you know, yeah. so that you know, you know, that, that, you know, you're retired, you're at home, and you could let people know, you could let Skip know, hey, if there's ever any need for that, you know, let me know. Right. You know, and it, without that conversation, we, we get into that, you know, that, that jam that you just talked about. Yeah. Yeah, that situation. Another problem is uh, a lot of times people assume that they will be able to get on the phone and um, make a call to deal with situations like this but uh, often in the in the wake of a disaster uh, everybody grabs their phone and the and the phone system breaks down 
and uh, you can't get that message out. So um, preparedness is uh, uh, the way to go and try to anticipate what's coming down and have a plan. Right. Yeah, we talk about the fact that having a long-distance number to be able to call on your phone because it actually takes a different route in a lot of cases. So one of the things, like even in the map, your neighborhood, they'll, they'll talk about that. I mean, having that, you know, somebody on the East Coast, somebody just outside of the California area to be able to call so that, say, my daughter could call her, yeah. you know, whoever, and, and then I would make that same call, and then we could at least know that we were both okay. And the other thing that happens here in, in the West County in particular are ham radio operators. Yeah. You know, we have a really strong communications group in the Sebastopol area that is part of the CERT program, but they're nonetheless a standalone group of people that they're set up to be able to communicate, um, yeah. you know, with each other. And then within the neighborhoods, we've set up some opportunities for the neighborhoods to be able to talk with their local ham operator that then connects into the larger network. I know what you mean about long-distance calling versus local calling because in uh, in uh, 1989 when the Loma Prieta earthquake occurred, I was in uh, my home in Reston, Virginia, which is near Dulles Airport in the Washington, D.C. area, mm-hmm. settling in to watch the World Series game. And uh, when the earthquake occurred, and and so then right away, Dan Rather came on, and he was there, and they had a a blimp in the air, which they had for the World Series game, but um, they were showing uh, the damage, the fires that were starting in the marina. They showed a a, a freeway, which Dan Rather thought had uh, some serious damage, but I knew the Bay Area well enough to know that what he was looking at was a was a, a double decker freeway, and it was now a single decker freeway. But anyway, so I I um, called my friends in Menlo Park, California, the, where the USGS Earthquake Research Group is. Mm. Uh, they had no power because their power was down. They could not get any calls out. So I, sitting in Reston, Virginia, informed them about the fires in the marina. I informed them about the span of the Bay Bridge that was down. So here I was, <laughs> a half a, a, you know, a clear car on the other side of the continent, telling them what was going on in their own neighborhood because they couldn't get communications right. locally. Right. But I got a call in from back east. Great example. That's a great yeah. example. So, uh, so you, can't, you have to be uh, kind of wary of counting on communications uh, mm-hmm. these days mm-hmm. in the wake of a disaster. Yeah, yeah. I it's think better that. to prepare and have a plan in advance that you can have a general understanding about rather than counting on making it up as you go along. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Skip uh, uh, wants to have us talk about who cares. Oh. Uh, 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 I need to show, and I would say that Bob Hamilton cares, and you've cared for a really, really long time. Yeah, he's been caring all over the world. (laughs) Well, I do care, and, um, of course, that was my profession. And uh, and uh, because I have been exposed to a lot of um, situations and knowledge that people have, I I have an understanding that, that things can be done to reduce losses, to reduce suffering. And uh, I have always tried to do my part to uh, try to make such things take place. Mm-hmm. Can't point to a whole lot of success in that area, but at least I and a lot of my colleagues uh, have made an effort. 
Yeah. Well, I would say you've been you've been dealing with a lot of really big issues. So, <laughs> you know, being able to have an effect, I think, is just is taking the time and getting in there and doing something about it at all. Bob, you know, so I mean, it, the, the travels and stuff. It, I can imagine there might be some level of disappointment in not being able to make a huge impact. But getting those, getting some people that don't normally talk to talk. Well, it, it's also. Uh, progress in uh, technology. Uh, there, there are a lot of good earthquake engineers in this country and elsewhere, and and they've made a lot of gains in research, uh, learning how to build structures better and to and sure. through uh, government actions, uh, improving building codes. And uh, so even though uh, I've been to a lot of meetings where we all spout off and say what we think needs to be done. In the end, it's often the engineers and the government officials that actually bring it about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate being able to chat with you, I mean, about this, Bob. It's been really, it's been really, really... Oh, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, it's been really great. So, so you have Who Cares? I want to start initiating quotes. Quotes? Yes. Okay. So here's wisdom from India. It is not the right advice that liberates or saves you and your family and your neighbors during an emergency, but the action based on it. So it's not right advice, but the actions that you take. Remember your very nature is compassion, goodwill, love. You do not want to suffer and you do not want others to suffer. In order to be of help to alleviate suffering, you must be beyond the need of help yourself. So that's what this program is all about, and that's what I think your life has been all about, is to alleviate suffering and and uh, to have us all go beyond the need of help. My, my, my favorite quote that I, I've often used is, chance favors the prepared mind. <laughs> and, and, and to yeah. me, that means in, in the hazard business that if you, uh, if you look around you, you try to figure out what, where the threats are and what might be done about it, you have a be- much better chance of surviving and, uh, and, and those around you surviving. So mm-hmm. chance favors the prepared mind is like my favorite that. quote. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that. I mean, that, that really you know, supports that whole idea of resilience right there, you yeah. know. And preparedness. I mean, yeah, and preparedness, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the fact that chance is really <laughs> it's going to happen, too. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're a wonderful man. Yeah, you're a wonderful fellow. Appreciate you being in the Sebastopol area. Well, it's great to be here. That's good. Okay. Richard, so another time, huh? Oh, July. July. July is coming up. Um, We'll be here on the first Sunday. It's the 4th of July weekend. It's the 5th, 5th. right? Right. It's the 5th of July. Believe it or not, we will be here. Hopefully you will be here, too. Okay. Thank you.